0: Welcome and thank you for joining us for another uh, irrigation training series with Jane Irrigation. I'm Richard Vastusha, Director of Water Management Solutions for Jane Irrigation. I've got some really great news for all of you today, something we're certainly excited about. I know you guys are excited about too or will be once you hear the news. Um, We actually have moved our training series to uh, podcasts now. So you can still get the videos on the web but you can also Find all this good training information on Spotify, Apple, or Google Podcasts now. So I know people are spending a lot of time in their trucks driving from job to job. They wanna be productive. It's stay safe at home times. I know a lot of people are walking and running. And so now we just have another channel, another way for you to get all our irrigation training series in a really easy manner through these podcasts. I'm really excited about that. I wanted to just share that with you uh, to start with. So uh, today we have a great subject and it's how do I irrigate that? And uh, it's, 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 it's a great title. I really like that title, Andy, Uh, and, and where it stems from is, you know, many times if you're looking at, you know, a rectangular space of turf in somebody's front yard or in front of their commercial building, uh, there's probably two ways to irrigate that correctly with spray heads and only two ways. But when it comes to drip irrigation, there's a lot more variables. And in drip irrigation, not only are there more variables, but there's a lot of different products and a lot of different ways to do it. So we often get in these situations where we scratch our heads and we say, how do, how do I irrigate that? So Andy Gary, the national sales manager for Jane Irrigation put this together to take a look at some of the really common situations that people sometimes struggle to irrigate. And um, we're really fortunate that Andy's doing this because um, it takes a lot of confidence, it takes a lot of know-how, and it takes a lot of experience. And Andy certainly has all three of those things. Uh, Andy's a graduate from BYU out of their horticulture program. Uh, After graduation, started working for Ballycrest, went to work as an account manager, working with the crews in the field, managing those crews, uh, promoted up to business development, worked for another contractor before coming to Jane. and and moving his way up at Jane now to his national sales manager's position. So uh, a lot of good success there, and uh, we're really happy to have Andy today sharing his experience with us. So with that, uh, I'll turn it over to you, Andy.
1: Well, thank you, Richard. I appreciate that uh, introduction. Good job as always, and congratulations on having these podcasts out on Spotify. I think that's a huge accomplishment, and um, I can't wait to get out there and listen to some of those in uh, in an easier format. So uh, great news there, thanks uh well welcome everybody um as richard said the uh we're going to discuss how to irrigate uh some some key scenarios in the landscape and what i thought i would do as far as a format today we want to run through from kind of a um the, the low end low value aspects of the landscape starting with annual flowers things that are easy to replace and then we'll work our way up through on the high end high value um components of the landscape and that being trees and how, to, and how to irrigate each of those. And we'll take uh, a few steps in between. As always, there's a question, um, a, a Q&A um, button. Uh, feel free to ask questions and uh, we'll get those answered. Um, but however, I, I wanted to start with, I know this is not quite landscape, but it, it is a, uh, a component of some yards and some people are really interested in, and that's vegetable gardening. And, and because, um, you know, I, I, I tease when I say this, you know, Jane is not a, a really into, into an agriculture. We don't do much. We always talk about landscape, right? <laughs> you know, um, I just want to make sure our ag guys are, uh, are feeling, feeling a little bit of love today. And I, I say that tongue in cheek, but um, how to irrigate, uh, you know, your vegetable garden. The picture I have here, this is uh, fennel, and this is being irrigated with drip tape. And this is how if you, <laughs> Uh, I I doubt very many people are are irrigating their yard this way if you are drip tape is a great way to do it Um, Like I said, this is gonna be large agriculture production Um, If you had a large yard and you're doing kind of a traditional row crop style uh, In your home garden, you could do it that way. But for most of us uh, We have smaller yards and the craze lately has been raised garden beds you go to any nursery landscape center and uh, you'll see a lot of these uh, drip irrigation components and the components to build these beds have uh, especially this past spring were, uh, were hard to find uh, people have rediscovered um, gardening in general not just landscape uh, and so you have this raised bed style of gardening and uh, there's a book i read man many years ago it's called square foot gardening And this guy was a proponent of, you know, you could grow more stuff in less space by, you know, following some some practices that he lined out. And so what you end up with is high density plant material in in um, in less space. And this will be kind of a repeating theme throughout this presentation day when we talk about density of plant material spacing soil type, right. And, but it rings true for your raised bed style of gardening. So you have, as you can see in this, this diagram, this uh, diagram, this illustration comes off our raised bed kit that that we sell at Jane. You can see you have a a few different ways of doing this. Um, We recommend an emitter line or a point source emitter um, for these raised beds. Now, if you have uh, like this lower, uh, this lower section right here. Um, very very dense plantings Uh, nothing beats a six inch spacing quarter inch emitter line or mini pep line right if you have large you know maybe tomato plants or 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 plants that you maybe you're putting a foot or two apart maybe you could do uh, a ring of that same emitter line or you could do uh, a point source emitter um so that that uh that that becomes a, a, a the best way in my opinion to irrigate these beds i am a big fan of the mini pep line Um, i've helped people design beds and what i'll do is across one of the short ends i'll put a header of half inch poly and plug into that the quarter inch mini pep line and i'll run it down the length and bring it back again and i've helped them create four foot by eight foot beds and so that you end up with a 16 foot run which is fine and you and you space that out six inches and then in that scenario you can plant whatever you want anywhere and you you're insured to have uh, coverage for your uh for your vegetables um and so just to get kind of a summary for your your raised garden bed uh mini pep line uh point source emitters and you can see on these point source emitters you can get kind of a stream application or more of a bubbling application but these would be the products you want for a
0: raised uh raised garden bed so andy i've got a few questions that have come in here so one is um Drip tape, you know, a lot of lot of front yards are going to uh, out with the turf and in with food, right? Uh, And and so, would drip tape be applicable in those situations? Why would I want to use drip tape versus a miter line? Well, you know, that's a good question. Drip tape is going to be
1: less expensive. It's thinner, uh, less expensive, and uh, so if you had a large, large, large area. And that's why farms are using drip tape for the cost. But if you had a uh, if something in your yard where the, the amount of material isn't going to be very high. I, my personal opinion is, and you could do it either way. I, if it were me, I would go with the emitter line, something that's heavy wall because I, the, the lifespan of that's going to be much longer. Um, it's going to be, uh, you get some advantages, of you know, pressure compensating emitters, um, you, you, you know, some of those advantages there. You could certainly use tape. But uh, you know, I my, my my preference would be for a smaller area to use the emitter line.
0: Yeah. Okay. Great. Thank you. And then in the uh, in the raised beds that you showed, mm-hmm. uh, nobody's really using a half inch emitter line in those. Uh. You know. You, you again. You could. And you, you
1: really you can do anything you want. I find it very impractical to do. It's it, it costs more to do. You can get the same uh, uh, quality and durability in the quarter inch emitter line but with when you're working with that tight space that four foot by eight foot eight foot space that quarter inch middle line is a lot easier to manipulate put it where you want it get it to hold and think about this you know so this diagram doesn't show it but if i had you know again my header going across the short side and i had these large loops going back and forth my quarter inch meter line that's really easy to flip out of the bed i can amend my soils in the spring plant my vegetables and then flip it back down that becomes a lot easier to manipulate and a little bit more cost effective than going with the half inch mirror line. And you could use half inch mirror line, but I find the uh, um, quarter inch line is a little bit easier to deal with.
0: Yeah, I totally agree, especially that part about uh, being able to lift it out, do whatever I need to do, and then put it back in, it's easy. And uh, uh, do you staple yours down? I do, I do, absolutely. Okay, absolutely. great, thank you. And, you know and this is
1: a perfect segue into the the next category now we're getting into landscapes here you know out, outside of your yard into commercial landscapes annual and perennial beds and uh i, I define an annual and perennial this is something you're rotating um oh man maybe up to six times a year at least twice a year you're doing these color rotations and the 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 theory here what we want to do again this is mass mass planting uh typical spacings you know four six maybe eight inches if you're really budget conscious um on these annual colors so with that what we want to do the 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 theory in irrigating these is we want to use emitter line to slowly soak the the root zone or drip irrigation but emitter line is 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 the preference here to slowly soak the root zone i see a lot Throughout the country, I, and I, I, you know, I'm still here in Vegas where it becomes especially bad. But I still, still see people using overhead spray, and when you use overhead spray, you end up damaging the flowers. And you get in areas like Vegas or Phoenix, the water droplets will sit on the flower, and the sun shines, acts like a magnifying glass, and will burn it, or it will uh, create a lot of weight, and it'll start to, to make the flowers uh, bend over, um, you know, tip over, fade. And then you you get into disease introduction when you have a lot of moisture on the leaves and flowers, you know, that becomes uh, um, Sometimes a breeding ground for some fungus and some different disease that are that are uh, that can be introduced into your flower bed. So uh, I, uh, I would challenge anybody who's using spray now and I can I can think of very few exceptions with succulents uh, Being the, the key exceptions, but I would challenge anybody who's using spray irrigation now for a flower bed to switch to uh emitter line and you know that quarter inch emitter line drip irrigation and applying that to the soil surface rather
0: than to the leaf and flower surface and and watch your flowers improve yep. um so, so Andy I could just run I could just plug in my quarter inch into uh my old supply line right I could cap off all the sprays yep, absolutely. plug it in and then could I just run my quarter inch all over this area one time you know snake it through there well, so good question, right? So again, we we come back to this
1: this similar theme, right? We're going to see some themes building upon each other. But going back to our our vegetable bed, that raised garden bed, if we follow that same principle to a an annual bed, which could be different shape, it may not be square, it could be kidney bean, you have that header like you talked about, right? And then you and then we put our uh, we plug in that quarter inch emitter line, and we go back to this flip out design, right? And the way that looks, if you look at at, at this here um with the header right running across the bottom here's your black line here's your header across the bottom and then here's the loops now you bring an inch uh, up a good question Richard can I just plug this in once and run it you know 500-foot roll everywhere the answer is no when you get into the engineering of, of, of irrigation tubing you can't run uh, that many feet of quarter-inch uh, line the rule of thumb um, and you follow this you'll be safe if you're going to loop it like this and you have six inch spacing don't exceed 20 feet and uh you know 20 feet that's a good number to stick to now 12 inch spacing you can go up to 30 feet that's just the way it works out but um uh six inch spacing i like to stick to that because of the tight plant spacing and i like to loop i like to loop each one and as long as your run doesn't go beyond 20 feet you'll be safe so I'm gonna anticipate your next question, right? What if I have to run longer than 20 feet? What do I do? Well, then it becomes uh, uh, a practical, and it makes sense to go from a quarter-inch emitter line up to a half-inch emitter line design because you can get those longer runs. Just the, the the hydraulics, right? The the, the engineering involved in the tubing. Um, but you know, there's there's uh, there's you could also segment your flower bed with, uh, with different headers. You, you could put a header on each end and meet in the middle. So there's different ways you can design. Again, when it comes to annual flower installation and a commercial landscape, I like this flip out design because if I'm changing, I'm rotating my, my flowers four times a year. Every time I do that, because I, I say I do it, in my proposal, because it makes me a better contractor, I'm adding organic amendments into the soil. I'm adding fertilizer to really get a good strong flower display. And it makes it a lot easier to flip that irrigation out. Use a use you know a spade or a little tiller to incorporate that organic material. Lay the irrigation back down with a staple,
0: and and uh, plant the flowers that way. Yeah. So, Andy, one more question, and that is, so so why why twenty feet? What's the magic? Or thirty? What what's happening? Why why is it that number?
1: Yeah, so as the water is flowing through the pipe, it creates friction. And when it creates friction, it reduces pressure. When you, it comes to the point where you, if I had that quarter inch piece of uh, emitter line and I ran it for 100 feet and I had, you know, 15 psi at the beginning, I'm not even going to get any water at the end. It's just going to run out of, uh, you know, just the, the friction loss creates pressure loss and the water stops flowing. It's not enough to get out of the emitters. Yeah. So that's um. It's it's true in your spray systems as you're setting up your
0: uh, your turf sprinklers and uh, and so forth. Right. So we have one more question. And is it twenty feet in total, or is it ten out, ten back, or is it twenty out and twenty back, forty feet? Uh, it is. It is twenty feet in total.
1: Total. So you could go twenty out and twenty back. I I I I I like to keep it. I just work in the twenty foot rule just for simplicity's sake, but yeah, if you want to get technical and you're really designing something, you could go out and back. Right. And I'll the but, other reason, but I you like, have to
0: think the total length of the emitter line, right? Twenty feet. Yes.
1: Yeah. Um, but but yeah, you know, it, when it comes to irrigation, I never like to go to the maximum because you just it's uh, there's safety, and I've done this in other presentations before. We're talking about designing an irrigation system. Whatever the max is, cut it in half, and that's just been a rule I've always followed. There's some safety there. Um, with that so yeah
0: okay great thank you yeah.
1: but now you guys all know and you can uh, make your own choice of what you want to do there <laughs> um, and again so when we're coming to the annuals and perennials here's the product that are involved uh, you can use half-inch as you see uh, on the left this total CV most of the time you're going to use the mini pep line uh, that can be in black or brown and of course
0: the staples to, to keep it uh, plugged down you, you know what I love about this Andy is it's simple You know, a lot of people say, oh, it's so complex. I feel like I'm putting Tinker Toys together or whatever. You know, there's so many pieces, but this really simplifies it and makes it easy to, uh, like you say, flip it out, do whatever you need to do and flip it back in.
1: Yeah, you know, it's interesting. You know, irrigation sometimes can be very intimidating, but it is, uh, there are some simple, uh, you know, just very basic fundamental principles. But once you understand that, you can apply it to every scenario. And it begins to make sense. And that's why, you know, for some of uh, for some of you who are, you know, maybe expert in irrigation, you're looking at this thinking, well, yeah, we've talked about this principle in several different applications. Um, it sounds like a repeat, but, you know, it really is, It is uh, there's just some, some, some simple fundamental practices that once you understand, you apply it to uh, to different scenarios across the board. And you'll see that here in our, in our next section. Right. So we have turf. You know, did you know I know everybody knows it. Yeah, yes, you can you can irrigate turf using subsurface drip Similar principle going back to our vegetable bed and our flower bed. This is, you know, an area where we need to apply a uniform amount of water across the entire area. Um, if, If you didn't think of turf as one organism, but a bunch of tiny little plants, which is really what it is really very tightly spaced together, you know, an eighth of an inch apart or a quarter of an inch apart. That's uh, that's what we have going on with turf. And so we follow that same principle of we need to spread that water evenly across the soil profile now. Things change a little bit with turf, whereas with your your flower beds, you can lay that irrigation line right on the surface. We're not doing that with turf, right, because We got to aerate and a quick way to ruin your irrigation system uh, is punch a hole through with a core aerator. So, um, we, we want to make sure we're uh, we're installing this emitter line at least uh, approximately eight inches deep eight inches seems to be the average and I, I, I probably should back up Richard um, in these applications. We're using half inch emitter line and we want to make sure we're using a pressure compensating emitter line because we want to give ourselves the best opportunity to have the same amount of water applied uniformly across the lawn area. And then that gets into a couple keys here for uh, subsurface drip in, your, in uh, turf. It's imperative to have a consistent soil texture throughout your irrigation zone. If you have in the same zone uh, uh, an area that has clay and an area that has sand, well, the water interacts differently in those areas. You'll end up overwatering in one area or underwatering another. And that's the, probably the biggest problem I think people have with subsurface drip. Uh, for turf is uh, is inconsistency of soil blends. But if you have a consistent soil blend, which yeah, I know a lot of people, especially out west for bringing in a topsoil And you can get a consistent compaction and you and then you know your texture, which is the other key. Once I know my texture. I know that uh, I know my emitter spacing requirements and then I know my lateral spacing requirements. Um, I can uh, I can uh, ha- I can have a lot of success. And so, um, you know, I, I I see I see that I've seen this used in large lawn areas. But where I find it very practical, like you see in this picture here, I, I call this a uh, boulevard, you know, that strip of of grass between the street and the sidewalk, or sometimes you see it you know in parking lot meetings and, and uh, grocery stores or the, the retail shops, these tiny little areas of turf that are hard to irrigate, and overspray everywhere, you know, get water spots all over the cars. You could do a subsurface turf. Uh, subsurface drip irrigation like this in
0: your turf and, and
1: and really have a lot of success with it.
0: Yeah. Andy, you have a guy working for you now, Dave Leiborne, right, who was really a pioneer in subsurface drip. Uh, and uh, yeah. Yeah. I know I've seen lots of photos of his yard, his personal yard, and and he uses it and it's beautiful. Uh, and yep. for years when uh, when we weren't working together but we stayed in touch, I would always ask him, how's that turf looking? And there was no time in which he uh, ever said he had problems. I know it's uh, been a good um, application for him. I also have another uh, favorite contractor uh, in, in, in the Bakersfield area. He does a lot of retrofits for subsurface uh, turf, drip and in, in turf and he'll leave um, he'll leave the old spray system in too and he'll have a manual valve so he can switch off the drip or put it back on the sprays. he says his uh, Customers are a lot sometimes more comfortable making the changeover with that, you know, to mentally make that switch. And I thought for retrofits, that's not a bad idea. What do you think about that?
1: You know, I I was just gonna say, man, that is a great idea, leaving the sprays in just to uh, maybe giving somebody the peace of mind. Um, You know, I have no, I'm not surprised at all that Dave's having a lot of success with subsurface drip in his yard. When it's, when you understand the correct principles and you get the soil engineered properly, it works very very effectively and uh like your uh your guy up in bakersfield is experiencing but i like that idea you know i think that's uh man, the smart contractors out there probably taking note of that um i just i always like showing this picture you know can you imagine irrigating this area with spray you know, it's kind of a nice artistic little effect not a lot of not a lot of turf but it looks nice by the pool um but this is you know this this hopefully Stoke some creativity for some contractors out there. This is a great way to use subsurface uh, drip irrigation
0: for turf. You know, this would be yeah. a this is, it would be a terrible thing to spray on a hot day like today, Andy. I'm having a hard time looking uh, not looking at the pool and looking at the irrigation. <laughs> you and me both. <laughs> so, products you're going to use in your subsurface
1: drip irrigation. before anybody says how deep is that, this was a uh, a setup shoot. It's not eight inches deep. It just an it was uh to to highlight a product but uh, power lock fittings are great and i'll tell you the reason why most of the time your your emitter line half inch emitter line is 17 millimeters and your your header or footer if you're using poly is going to be a larger size going be like 18 millimeter right so you, having one fitting like this power lock fitting that fits both sizes a universal fitting becomes key you can't do that with a barb insert fitting you can't do that with a compression fitting so uh this power lock fitting is is absolutely necessary again we have a staple We have the uh, the half inch emitter line and then we're adding now this guy this flush Um, uh, Because your irrigation system is buried under the turf and you're not going to be digging it up. Very often you want to make sure you're maintaining your system and you're going to make sure uh, you do that via a flush valve of some sort and here I'm highlighting our uh, automatic lateral flush valve.
0: Yeah, so hang on Andy my head's spinning a little bit. Um, (laughs) You mean everybody has half inch tubing. I really need different fittings for different tubings. What's that about yeah, well, uh, half inches of misnomer.
1: Um, none of it is truly half inch. But in the category we call half inch, there's at least four different sizes. There's 16 millimeter, there's 17 millimeter, there's 18 millimeter, uh, and then we, we switch over to uh, to inches. We have a, a 0.7 by a, a 0.6, which is in between 17 and 18 millimeters. So there's
0: at least four different sizes of tubing that we call half inch. That the industry calls half inch. So if I don't know what tubing's in the ground, like if I've inherited a job and I'm a maintenance contractor and I'm rolling up and there's a problem, I have to carry a bunch of different fittings in my truck?
1: Yeah, that's the old way of doing it. If, you're, uh, if you wanna save time and money, you buy power lock fittings. You stock your truck with a, a PL55 series of power lock fittings and it's a one size fits all. It fits 16, 17, 18 millimeter and 700, 600. So you reduce the amount of material you have to carry which is which is clean, but uh, you also are going to save time in labor. So you might spend another 15 cents for the fitting, but you're probably going to save five dollars in labor. You know, if you're if you're paying uh, you know irrigation technicians, even if you're just your irrigators, going rates, you're going to uh, you're going to you know save a lot more money in labor than you are going to add in material expense.
0: Yeah, yeah, and you know where else you're going to save time? Where? Well, I'm going to use whatever uh, wrong fitting I had in my truck and I'm going to make it work, right. I'm going to jam it in there. Somehow it's going to work. And then a few days later, I'm going to get the call back. And you're doing that repair for free. <laughs> I'm going to have to go do it the right way. So uh, that's where I'm going to save a bunch of time too with yep. the power lock because it's going to be done right the first time. Yep. No, no, you're absolutely right. That's uh, that's, that's key. Yeah. Wow. So we have a question, Andy, too, on that flush valve. Where does that flush valve go in this type of layout? At the end of the line. So let's see, well, you know, I can I can use a I can use this
1: diagram here. Um, um you know, we're getting ready to kind of transition into to planter beds, but assume this kitty bank being, being shape was turf, and this box right here was my irrigation valve, my on-off valve, I would put my flush line right here at the end. Or if it was in a square grid like this, and this was the end, you know, the, the site closest to us was was in, I could put my flush valve here
0: at the end. Huh. Really, I thought that's where you're supposed to just fold over the tubing and use some baling wire to wrap around the end. You've seen that too, huh? <laughs> yeah, you know, I've seen that and I,
1: I'm always just, I'm always amazed to see it. I'm thankful when I see it and they at least put a six inch uh, valve box around it. It's really frustrating when they just, you know, wrap it up. It's not bailing wire, it's old irrigation wire. And then they just bury it somewhere out in the landscape and you have no idea where it is. but.
0: uh <laughs> Yeah, and so then uh, another question, you know, is the flush valve above the ground, below the ground? What do you do about that?
1: I uh, would install it in a box, in a in a small valve box. We make a little four inch by six inch uh, bubbler box. We call it. You could put it in a six inch round. It's going to be at the same level as your as your uh, emitter line is. So in subsurface turf, it's going to be, you know, beneath the surface. If it were laid on surface, you could you could you know dig it down a little bit. I I think it looks clean and sharp when it's uh when it's below the surface in a box yeah and what does it actually do so every time the irrigation system turns on there's a little diaphragm inside this flush valve that opens up and uh it, it runs for uh, uh a few seconds and any debris that's in the line gets flushed out Now you say, well, if I have a filter, why do I need a flush valve? How was debris getting introduced? Well, two ways. Number one, if you had to make a repair, something was punctured, right? Debris could be introduced that way. Number two, if you live in a hard water environment, sometimes uh, those deposits can build up on the inside and uh, end up plugging the emitters. If you have the opportunity to flush those out then becomes uh, uh, critical.
0: Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I love that you brought the flush valve up. It's so important to, uh uh a a more maintenance free not maintenance free but less maintenance on your system and boy yeah they're they're really valuable and um, uh, they're not you you don't see them everywhere that's for sure but i I know that's changing and as people learning more about um, drip irrigation they're adding the flush valves and i think uh they're they're uh, enjoying their uh, their irrigation systems a lot more as a result yeah
1: yeah well it's uh, again it's a time-saving device um you don't need to go out um, send two guys out to the landscape one at the valve to manually turn it on the other one with the either the bailing wire undone or the cap unscrewed turning it on yelling back and forth whistling to turn it off it just takes care of it automatically and yeah. as a contractor that means more time to pull weeds deadhead flowers pick up uh, trash that's jammed in the landscape somewhere.
0: Yeah so one last question on the flush valve this is uh, interesting. Um, do you have to have a flush valve when you have check valve emitters?
1: Uh, yes, yeah, so that's a good question. You you don't um, you still need to flush your system. I mean, so I guess you're you're getting into what is it an air relief valve or you know, the whole air relief check valve system set up? It kind of may may seem contradictory, um, but uh, strictly speaking, flushing. Part of good drip system maintenance is flushing your irrigation system, and I'll leave it at that. Yeah. Great, Andy,
0: thanks. Wow.
1: Um, you know, is again vegetable beds, annual beds. Here we are into shrub beds. Um, I know this picture is, is perennials, but if you had a, a tightly spaced shrub bed, right? We're following these same irrigation principles as in the past, and you can see here it might be a, a slightly looser layout. Um, Again, we're using half-inch emitter line. Uh, it can be buried or it can be laid on the surface and covered in mulch. You can do it in a free form, like the diagram I have in a, on the left, or you could do it in a grid layout, like is uh, illustrated in this picture on the right. And we, um, um, in these scenarios, you know, half-inch emitter line is going to be the best. Using a, and we did a whole training on this uh, several weeks ago. When do I use point source? When do I use emitter line? If you'll recall. This was the scenario where you want to use emitter line. It's going to save you a lot of time. It's going to be a lot more effective. Um, again, the key to remember here, your, your soil is going to determine your spacing and your flow. Um, so you're going to want to know that. Um, and again, like turf and like flower beds, it's ideal for areas that require a high distribution uniformity. And we look at the material that's involved. Again, it's, it's, we're looking at the same stuff as we were for, uh, for turf. We're a half inch emitter line power lock fittings and flush valve and staples aren't on there, but uh, make sure you include those keep them if you're not bearing it to keep it uh, tacked down. Um, so with that said, we're going to, you know, transitioning into, you know, shrubs out in your landscape, right? This, this would be kind of individual shrubs. We're getting into our, um, non-emitter line, right? Let's say we're going to use point source. And there was this common formula and I've heard it many times that how many emitters do I need for my shrub will follow this formula. If it's a one gallon size plant, it needs one emitter. If it's a five gallon size plant use two emitters 15 gallon three emitters 24 inch box four emitters, right? No. <laughs> All right, my little animation. We don't want to do that. And here's the reason why. Uh, A couple days ago, I went over to our friends at Star Nursery in Las Vegas, and I took this picture. Uh, On the left, you have a one-gallon red-tip potenia. In the middle, a five-gallon red-tip potenia. And on the right, a 15-gallon red-tip potenia. Red-tip potenia at mature size could exceed 12, 15 feet and be 10 feet wide. And if you were to plant this one-gallon guy and put one emitter on it, it, if it survives, it's not going to grow past that size. It's going to, it's going to stay about that size. And that's not what we want, right? We're not planting shrubs to have them um, look the same as they did the day we implanted. We want it to mature and, and um, improve. So what to do, what to do, what to do. The key here to remember is this, the number of emitters for your shrub is going to vary from plant type. And it's going to uh, be determined largely on the m- mature size of the tree. So if or the, the shrub, I'm sorry, if uh, the ma- mature shrub size is maybe, you know, one to two feet tall and wide, I'm probably going to be okay with just two emitters because that is going to give That plant enough water to maintain its root zone for it to achieve its maximum potential as a plant. Right. And I, you can see these diagrams I've got here across the bottom. If I go into a medium sized shrub that might be maybe it's a three to four feet wide vital um i you know and with it with a root zone that's approximately the same size i might need three or four emitters to meet that size and then when we get into large shrubs like the photinia you can get into oleander um silverberry um even crape myrtle some of these small shrubs or the, the large trees uh we really want to understand where the root zone is and then cover that entire root zone with emitters and that can be that could be in, in this diagram here, we have um, uh, there's probably a dozen point source emitters. And at that point, you may consider well, maybe I just put down a grid or several rings of emitter line. And so when you get into these larger shrub scenarios, you're looking at point source or emitter line, um, if that makes sense. So the key, the key to remember is what's the mature size of my shrub and irrigate it for its feature growth. And you you can see a couple of scenarios here, right, we have a a very small shrub. And this is a stock photo on the left comes out of our catalog highlighting our click tip emitter A small, very small plant that gets by with just one emitter. And then we have on the right, you know, uh, looks small. Now this is probably going to be a medium sized shrub that needs more emitters and it's been done with a a loop of emitter line.
0: So Andy, I can, uh, as the plants get bigger, I can increase the size of those rings as well. Is that what people do? Well, so yeah, so that, that brings up another good point. You have a choice
1: when you're installing. You either irrigate it for its mature size now, or you come back and you add to it every year, little by little. In commercial landscape, uh, it's really tough to get budget or time. I mean, you spend more doing it later, coming back, but I know I know companies that are doing that. Um, I think you'll find it less expensive to do it right up front because even if the plant The 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 canopy of the the shrub or tree Doesn't reach its mature size immediately the roots the roots will get out there right away So if you irrigated a A small shrub let's say you're irrigated for a five foot by five foot area and right now it's tiny like this one on the right the roots will grow and fill that out uh and and uh almost immediately, and you'll end up with a uh, a healthier plant overall. So uh, again, my opinion, you can do it either way. My opinion is um, irrigate now for the mature size during the installation process, rather than coming back and having to do it later at a greater expense.
0: Yeah, that's great advice, Andy, thanks. So, um, okay,
1: so I got got, got a picture here I wanna share. I call this the tell of two trees. both of these trees were planted around 2008 in fact i think the one on the right was actually planted uh, earlier uh but the one on the left i know was planted 2008. these are both uh, arizona ash trees they were both 24-inch box trees when they were planted the tree on the left and they're both growing in uh you know similar environment right it's not like one's growing in turf they're both growing in, in uh in in a decorative rock environment uh the tree on the left has a 25-foot canopy and so do all his uh, brothers and sisters that were planted at the same time this tree on the right he's got at best a, a five foot canopy and and so do all the other trees you can see the one back here behind him just uh, above that truck bed to the right they're all the same size about the size they were when they were planted and they're 24 inch blocks. This, this tree is alive but it's never really grown and i i show these two pictures because i want to highlight the importance of irrigating properly and if we go to the next slide here you can see this picture on the right this is again the tree with the five-foot canopy the tree that didn't grow very much it has it was installed with four emitters it was a 24 inch box tree installed with four emitters right about the outline of the root ball so uh, about four square feet is being irrigated as opposed to this tree and it's you can kind of see in the picture you can see this this ground that was wetted it's uh, it's about a 12 foot by 12 foot grid of emitter line which is still insufficient for that uh tree but you can see you know this just illustrates the difference here and so it had 150 square feet of root zone being irrigated versus four and you, you can see the difference in what it does to a tree um both trees about the same age same species um within a mile of each other and that's uh, the difference of watering now Um, I I look at this, you know, I look at this tree on the right. I don't think anybody plants a tree for it to, you know, look terrible Um, that tree is using water right waters a resource Uh, trees. Landscape is an asset. We do not want to invest a precious resource into a valuable asset to have it decline in value over time. It just becomes a waste of water. If you're going to grow a tree, do it right and get the return on your investment, which, which is shade. And Richard, on a hot day like this, I'm sure you appreciate the value of a good shade tree.
0: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's really good advice too, Andy, because, you know, they're expensive too to buy. Yeah. I really want to get the most out of them because they can really be my most valuable asset on my property. But uh, if it doesn't work out, that's, uh, it it causes a lot of problems. That's great.
1: If I were looking at this from an insurance standpoint, you know, putting a value on something in the landscape, that tree on the left, man, that's, Ten thousand dollars I don't know eight ten thousand dollar replacement value for a large mature shade tree that guy on the right man I could rip that out and put another 24 inch box tree in for less than 500 bucks
0: yeah.
1: you know so so it becomes uh, you know the value of your landscape you know as we're building from low value to high value so the key here to remember is is going back to what we were talking about shrubs right irrigate for the future growth of the tree um, Alternatively, you could come back every year and expand the irrigation system. I recommend irrigating for the future growth of the tree. Um, Again, we want to understand the mature size of the tree, the species. You know, trees grow differently. They have different growth characteristics. Some trees can have a root zone, as you see on this picture on the left, that expands up to four times beyond the canopy of the tree. Some trees have, you know, kind of a, you know, more of a compact root zone. Um, so you can see on this left here, this is where we want to irrigate, right? We want to get the water out to those outer reaches of the tree. And here's bird's eye view looking down on it. Here's our tree canopy. You know, here's where the roots are growing out. You know, it's this uh this outer two-thirds of the root zone where we want to water. And as a good rule of thumb, if I know, you know, my the max size of my tree, let's say, is a you know, 20 feet by 20 feet, it's got a 20-foot wide canopy, and I know the root zone expands. Know twice beyond that, so I got 40 foot by 40 foot root zone. I want to minimum, at a minimum, irrigate 75% of that root zone for a healthy tree, so call that you know a 30 foot by 30 foot. That makes sense. And our key the the, the key product we're using here uh, is going to be emitter line. Now, I will add a disclaimer you could use a point source emitter and get the results, but from a practicality and cost standpoint, it makes no sense. You could for the cost of material and the cost of labor irrigate, you know, again, let's go back to that 30 foot by 30 foot area. We need to irrigate for that mature tree. I can do it more. Uh, I can do it uh, more cost effective in terms of material and labor by using an emitter line grid like you see on the left or by using tree rings. Now this tree ring, of course, you imagine this expanded out 10 or 12 times. And yeah, you get the idea, but this this gives you an idea of,
0: of two different styles you could use to uh, to irrigate those trees. So Andy, we've got a a broad question here about drip irrigation systems in general. Yeah. Um, for like emitter line or any of these products you've been talking about, uh, once they're installed and installed properly, designed and installed properly, what should my expectation be for how long it should last? <laughs> Uh, okay so here comes the commercial (laughs) well you know
1: it should last you should be able to get 15 to 20 years out of your drip system you should the problem is there's a lot of uh, 'er ne'er-do-well manufacturers who in an effort to increase profit or increase sales they're reducing the quality of their product and when it comes to drip tubing specifically what that means is they introduce recycled plastics and foam fillers and that decreases it weakens the integrity the structural integrity of the drip line and so you end up with a product and i experienced this firsthand a contractor we took over a brand new installed site it was less than one year old and we were having blowouts in the drip line and back then i thought man all, all, all drip sucks <laughs> only later did i learn it was a very low quality tubing if you if you're getting a tubing that like jane you know we're using 100 percent virgin resin no foam fillers uh nothing recycled if you're getting a good high quality tubing um we, we we warranty our tubing for 12 years i think 15 to 20 years is is realistic if you're if you're maintaining it properly
0: yeah that's awesome and then what about upgrades to my system should i think uh, maybe 20 percent of what my initial install cost was should be for upgrades or do you have any ballpark numbers like that oh uh you know i don't you know it's, it's interesting you asked that i had a guy
1: so several years ago a guy who worked uh for hoas he did reserve studies for hoas and he asked that same question and it was that's tough um I, sometimes i i would say at least as much as the initial install sometimes more just because it's easier to install irrigation on a on a clean construction site um specifically in the desert environments where we're using uh aggregate mulch decorative rock because a lot of times this uh these, these lines are, are buried under decorative rock and it becomes a little bit more tricky to, to pull it up and redo it but i would say you know for budgeting purposes
0: it's got to be uh
1: it's gonna be pretty darn close to the the initial install
0: yeah so any one other question we have uh do you have any tricks to help people right you put in subsurface drip but you're very active in your garden adding plants, changing them out um uh, your subservice, man i'm hitting those uh irrigation lines all the time with my shovel you know uh, what are some tips to help people out with this
1: um well i don't know if i'm the one to ask because just the other day i was uh, using the uh the fork out in the garden i punctured my emitter line um and i didn't know it until the irrigation ran and uh, you know of course it was running at four o'clock in the morning and I, you know i got the bellagio fountains um I have a lot of power locks on hand because that's what yeah. I did. I went out and I cut out a little section, put a power lock in there. and It was a two-minute fix. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's that's tough, especially if you're active in your garden, and you're digging all the time. You're bound to hit those lines. Uh, tread lightly. Uh, that's what I've learned to do. Uh, I don't go out with the uh, the large spade anymore. You know, the fork. i use a little hand plastic hand trowel um, and uh, and then, or or maybe. Being out there enough, I kind of know where the lines are. I know where I can uh, where I can dig and can't dig. But that's uh, you know that that's true for but you need to be careful out there anyway because not just your drip irrigation line. You could have main line irrigation if you get deep enough, right? If you're if you're digging deep enough, you could have uh, low voltage wiring for your landscape lighting. You could have other other very things. I think it's just a good idea in general to know what you have there, approximately where it is, and then tread lightly.
0: Yeah, those are good suggestions, Andy. A couple others that I use. When I first install my subsurface, I take a lot of photos. I try to put a signal plant in one area so that I know, okay, my drip line runs just at the top of this plant. And then I try to keep my line straight and I measure to the next line so that again, in my head, when I'm looking, I can say, okay, 12 inches more from my signal plant, I've got another line. So it's a couple, couple tricks I use. I know everybody's got their own tricks. Yeah, and I
1: can tell you, going back to commercial landscape days, I know crews in the field. If we knew there was a poly drip line, you know, usually in the top couple inches, and we knew we were probably going to hit it, sometimes it was cheaper just to hit it than to slowly dig around it because the repair was so much easier than it was in, in time-wise. So, for uh, for the for the, uh, the contractors out there, of course, they probably already know that, but that's uh, it. Just becomes a practical side of the business at, at times. So. Uh, you know, I, I wanted to uh, as I was going through this presentation go from, you know, low value up to high value and end with trees uh, being high value um, Components of the landscape and I want to end with this picture. This is a tree. This is in Great Basin National Park in Nevada uh, Was there a few weeks ago, they say it's the least visited National Park in the country, but boy it sure was crowded when I was there but up near Wheeler Peak, uh, around 10,000 feet, 11,000 feet, you get these bristlecone pines. This is a uh, bristlecone pine that's 4,700 years old. And to put it in perspective, this tree was two or 300 years old when the pyramids were being built in Egypt, if I if I remember my history correct. This tree was already you know, 25, 2700 years old when the uh, New Testament events were being written about. Um, uh, Trees are an amazing, impressive thing yeah, to see. And I know not every tree is 4,700 years old, but Richard, out in your area, I'm sure you got some oaks that are three to four, 500 years old, and Northern California, the redwood trees, you know, we, um, the, this plant material that we have the privilege to work with every day as, as gardeners and landscapers, it is truly, truly amazing. It can, it can be a huge uh, uh, beneficial impact on our lives when we take care of it properly. And, uh, you know, irrigation is key to all that. And uh, I think of uh, all the trees I've planted throughout my life, I always remembered this tree I'm planting today is gonna provide shade to somebody down the road. And I hope when I'm long and gone and and past my kids, my children are old and and gray. I hope that tree is still providing shade for somebody. And that can be the case if we uh, just follow some simple basic irrigation principles.
0: Wow, pretty powerful message, Andy. You know, that emotional attachment we have to our, plants and our trees and our landscapes in general. And this is a really great reminder. Well, listen, you've done a fantastic job today, as usual. Andy, you never disappoint. I always learn stuff from you, uh, so, so that is great. Thank you. Uh, thanks to all of our uh, listeners and viewers today. Uh, here's uh, Andy's information up on uh, the slide. I know that if you have any further questions, feel free to email him or call him. I think that's 702-600-8911. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I did remember it. So uh, Andy, thank you. Thanks to everybody. And don't forget, check us out on the podcast. Uh, that might be a nice way to uh, listen and learn uh, as well. So thanks everybody. And uh, Andy, thanks again. Have, have a great day. Well, you're welcome. Thank you.